Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors, your tax depreciation experts. Today, I've got a very, very special expert for you. The CEO of Property Power Partners, published author, real estate market analyst, guru, and a gentleman with the only patented system for predicting property prices within Australia. It is John Linderman. Now we talked to John about his property analysis all the way back from the 1890s and what we can learn from the analysis that he's taken through to today. We talked to him about his seven deadly sins, how investors are getting it wrong. We look at the key drivers to purchase prices. We talk about the regional versus city debate and we get some insights from him about what investors should be looking at and focusing on in the next couple of years. It's an awesome interview with John, who's very generous with his time. Here's John. John Linderman, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all mine, John. I've been following you for a, a long time. You're in rarefied air as a as a property market analyst and uh, and and guru. So it's um it's a true delight for anyone that's been living under a rock. John, can you let us know uh, who you are, what you specialise in? Well, I'm a, a property market analyst, author, and commentator. I've been doing that for quite a long time, and I thoroughly enjoy looking at the market, interpreting what's going to happen. It's it's something that uh, I've totally immersed myself in. It's a, a great thing to be able to do. Yeah, and of course, we're going to, to dive into the uh, the opportunity of having you on by, by picking your brain on a lot of that stuff, especially given the, the market such as it is uh, and the state of flux at the moment. To give us a bit of a, an insight into, into you, John, though, what were the posters on the bedroom wall growing up? My posters were, uh, I, I was born in Holland and I was a Dutch child, uh, two years old when we came here, and they were mainly windmills, I think, in <laughs> Right. <laughs> I thought maybe, gosh, that's sort of like cycling heartland, maybe the Tour of, Tour of Flanders style cobblestone roads or something like that. Yeah, a lot of windmills and, uh, yeah, very tulips, you know, the traditional stuff. Uh, <laughs> What about um, what about property? How, how did you get started and what was your first investment? Well, I, I was lucky enough to start at a, a fairly early age. Um, I'm 20 years old and uh, I, I grew up in Sydney but I met a girl from Melbourne and so naturally I, I moved to Melbourne. And uh, I discovered that you could buy sort of old terrace houses fairly cheaply at that time. So I was 20 years old and bought a, a terrace house in Hawthorne and um, I discovered after five years it had doubled in value. So that was the first property I ever bought. And right. <laughs> being young and naive, I thought, oh, that's how the market works then. This is easy money. Um, so it started me on my journey, but of course it, it wasn't all uh, easy money at all, as I discovered with the next property I bought. Um, you know, it, it didn't go up, and I, I had a lot to learn about the market. So that's really what started my journey. It was a quest to find out, well, you know, why does one go up and the other one not go up? Um, and in doing that, I, I read books, went to seminars, workshops, boot camps, whatever I, I could. But no one really told me how the market worked. So I, I then I finished my professional studies. 
I joined the ABS for five years to Australian Bureau of Statistics. I studied trend analysis, then I went to Residex, where I was the head of research. Um, and I in, put in practice in all these theories about property market performance. And then I set up my own company, uh, Property Power Partners, when I thought I knew exactly how the market worked and how investors could get the most benefit. Yeah, I mean, and and those are some uh, some pretty fantastic things for the resume as well. Obviously, working at the ABS and and seeing all the data coming in and and having the ability to to analyze that obviously um, piqued that curiosity. What what was it that you studied at, at university? Was it statistics or something like that? It was marketing and statistics. Um, yep. Because marketing is really about numbers if it's done properly. So there was a correlation there, and then I applied what I'd learned um, about statistics to the property market. For example, I learned about trend analysis and I thought, well, if you can trend commodities like gold and silver and so on, can you do that with the property market? And it, it performs exactly the same way. Yeah, wow, okay. Now that's interesting. Um, now I could talk to you about that for hours, but uh, I'm I'm wary that the listeners are going to get fed up with me if I'm doing that. So, um, given we've only got limited time, I want to dive right in. How, how about this? What's probably going to do in 2021? I even hate myself for asking that, <laughs> that question. Well, if you'd asked me that six months ago, I probably would have said oh, I have no idea. Uh, you know, we yeah. really didn't know what was going to happen with uh, with COVID. We, as a company, we do a lot of predictive reports for clients, both business and uh, private investors, and we decided to stop doing predictive reports until we could really work out what was happening. And it's only been probably the last month or so that it's become quite clear what's going to happen. So um, I would think your readers and listeners would be quite keen to uh, to see what that is. Uh, I think the first thing that's happening is that because of the you know record low borrowing costs that we're experiencing at the moment, the fact that the banks have got plenty of money and the governments are throwing incentives at first-time buyers, what's happening is we're getting this sort of wave of first-time buyers into the market and that's going to spread right throughout all affordable areas of the market. So unlike last time where we had sort of boom in Sydney and Melbourne, I think we're going to find good price growth occurring almost everywhere. But the next thing, of course, is that that first-time buyer demand will slow down because a lot of people who were thinking about buying maybe a year from now or two years from now have decided to jump in and, and buy property. So it's going to slow down next year, I think, as that wave passes uh, through. Yeah, and and I think the market certainly is 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 pretty tight around the country. We, we've seen Core Logic come out with their November figures to say that every capital I think has shown some price growth in in November. So you, you're thinking that people are are aware of that and and wanting to jump in now, bring their plans forward, so that they're not having to pay a premium in a year or two. That's exactly what I think is happening. They're taking advantage. Uh, existing homeowners, a lot of them are refinancing because they can get a better deal from the banks. So, and some of them are starting to upgrade. So, I think we'll see this growth will continue and will move into uh, sort of more established areas, you know, upgraded type markets. But it won't be a boom. It's not going to be something where we're going to see, you know, anything in double digit growth. I think it'll be 
fairly slow, but it'll be sustained and it'll continue probably for most of next year. Yep. Do you think that there are any permanent changes to the property market or, or the way that it works or the structure of it that the pandemic's going to have? I mean, a lot of people have talked about sort of the working from home or Zoom um, revolution, the the sea change, tree change, people uh, maybe emptying the, the CBDs a little bit to get a little bit more wide open spaces. Is there something like that that you think is going to have been changed forever by the pandemic? Well, I would have thought, yes, uh, about six months ago, we, we run a number of uh, education and mentoring programs and I was talking to students in Melbourne and, and, you know, they were getting, with the second lockdown, more and more despondent and uh, a lot of them were saying, as soon as this is over, we're going to move to Brisbane or we're going to you know, <laughs> go somewhere where, where the air is clean and there's no COVID. Um, but now that it's over, you know, the border lockdowns are, are pretty much over. Um, they're not moving because they say, oh, hang on, it's the sun shining, it's a nice day, we don't we'll stop wearing masks soon and um, people are returning to their old habits. So I think it's not going to have that much of an effect in terms of people wanting to move, but it, it will have a definite effect in another area, and that is when the international borders open, we are going to be inundated with overseas arrivals because we're one of the few countries in the world that got through this um, you know, we're a shining example to the rest of the world of how to do this properly and get through something like this. So I think that um, when that happens, we're going to see huge lift in demand for housing as people start coming here from other countries. That's the yeah. change. The big one, I think, that will happen. So if if people say in in Melbourne, uh, you know they've they've talked about, oh look, we're we're going to move to Mornington Peninsula or Ballarat or something, and out of lockdown they realise, oh look, my favourite cafe is still still open. Uh, let's let's not be too hasty. We're, we're not going to see those those big changes you, you're saying, but are we going to say see some changes like people that used to live closer to say Sydney City moving to the northern beaches? You know, like that little bit of a, a little bit of a longer commute, but they're getting more house for their money. I think that's a trend that that is occurring anyway, um, and it it's something that will continue. But the some people, some experts say, oh, people will move to regional areas and, and they can work from home. But the problem is that uh, we have friends and family and we don't really want to move too far away from them. And mm. you go to some regional areas and the internet you know, service is absolutely abysmal and you find that you can't run uh, your own business or work from home in the way that you might be able to in, in a big city. So there's mm. restrictions on what people can do and, and they when they go and have a look at these areas, they quickly discover them. So I think it'll be more of a trend that when people do move, they'll move to those sorts of areas. They might buy a property that's got an extra room where they can use that as an office. That sort of thing will occur. Yep. Yeah, and I guess the media is, is very interested in picking up on the trend and if you want to write a story about a Melbourneian moving to Queensland, you'll be able to find somebody, right? But just because we're hearing about those stories doesn't mean that we're talking about a, a mass migration. I, I don't think it, it's never happened before. I don't think it, uh, it will. I looked at what happened during the Great Depression in the 30s and, yes, people did move from, from capital cities to country areas, but the reason for that was 
that uh, they couldn't afford the repayments, so they lost their homes, and at least they could survive in country areas. So, you know, we're not looking at that sort of scenario now, thank goodness. So I don't think it's going to have a, a huge impact, but I think that opening the borders, the international borders will definitely have a huge effect on our markets. Yep. Now, people might be impressed to see that you've analysed the property market back in the 1930s, but uh, you've actually gone back and, and analysed them through all the way back to the 1890s, as if, I'm, if I understand correctly. What, what have you learnt by going that far back that is actually useful and applicable today, do you think? Well, I, I wanted to go back further, but what I discovered was that you might find a house being sold for two pigs and a gold nugget. So you couldn't really value what what Poppy was doing. Um, three three goats and a pint of ale. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so um, what I've discovered since I, I'd analysed from eighteen nineties onwards is a couple of unique things about the Australian property market and indeed Australia in general. And the first thing is that our population has always gone up. Now you might think this is normal, but no, it isn't. And in many countries around the world. Populations are not growing, getting you know, more in size. They're just getting older. People are not having uh, that many children. And so if population decreases, then, of course, the demand for housing decreases along with it. The, the other thing is that our financial institutions are really quite sound. Although we've had a few bank failures at the worst of the 1890 uh, recession and again in the 1930s, we, we lost a few, but... In the GSC, we didn't really lose anything. And um, mm. the other thing I, I discovered is that there's always been a housing shortage of some sort somewhere in Australia. So there's always opportunities to find good investments if you look in the right areas at the right time. Yeah, sorry. With your... <laughs> Can I add a bit to that? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, what I, as a result of those, those dynamics... I discovered that housing prices have always gone up over time and the average growth is about a doubling every eight to ten years. So a lot of um, experts use that and say, well, that's what the housing market does. But it doesn't. It actually, the growth is very irregular and you might find long periods of time where there's no growth and suddenly you'll find periods where it doubles in a few years. So that's the other thing that uh, I discovered. Now, that begs the question, uh, how do we find these these markets that maybe have stagnated, um, such as we probably saw with, with Sydney as, as doing nothing for around about 10 years and, and getting some crazy growth? I know you've researched the best and the worst perform performers across uh, uh, Australia. Are we talking about suburbs there? What, 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 can you, what can you enlighten us with on that? Well, you, you can go down to suburbs and you can look at individual suburbs and you, what you see there is it's all about supply and demand. So if, the, if there's more supply of properties than what there is demand for them, then prices will simply fall. And if that disparity is very large, then you can actually get collapses in, in property values. But to give you one example of that is that there's an island in Morton Bay called Russell Island, and it's, um, it's actually part of Greater Brisbane, it was developed in the 1970s by some enterprising developers and they actually developed 20,000 lots on Russell Island. Um, in the 
sort of marketing blurb that went with it. There were the promises of a bridge being built so that you could commute to Brisbane. Um, what they didn't mention was that much of the island went underwater at high tide. And right. So they, the 20,000 lots, and this is a true story, um, these were sold to unsuspecting investors in, in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, uh, who had no idea of what they were getting into. 16,000 of those lots could never ever be built on. Um, they did all the surveys, obviously, at low tide. You know, they, they, they paid the government at the time uh, a lot of money to not to uh, say anything about this. It was quite a scandal. Um, the thing is that even now, Russell Island still has a stigma to the locals. They say, oh, no, don't, don't buy in Russell Island. So you've got the lowest priced properties in the whole of Brisbane on Russell Island. There's nothing wrong with it now. Um, but it's because of that history that people say mm. it's, it's no good. And it's actually probably been one of the worst um, examples of what can happen if you buy it purely on the, on the idea that you think um, you know, the demand will be there in the future. How do we see demand in the statistics? So let, let's say we're, we're, we're looking for a property that has a supply and demand equation that's, that's tipped heavily in the, on the side of there being demand and we want to purchase in that area. Are we looking at something like days on market or inventory levels? What, what, what should we be looking out for? Well, you, you can look at all of those things and, and if you look at the time on market or vendor discounting, all of those sorts of things, even um, online, the number of um, people who visit that a site gets a particular property online, listing sites and so on. You can use all of those, but the danger is you'll end up with analysis paralysis because there's so yeah. much data out there. Um, I look at two key indicators that tell me when a market's going to to do very well. And, and the first one is simply changing the number of listings. If, if that is properties listed for sale on the market, if you see that dropping dramatically, then you know that uh, people are buying properties and if prices have, haven't gone up yet, they, you know, they will imminently do so. Um, and in many areas where there's a lot of rental properties, you can do the same with rental vacancies. So if I can give you an example of that, there was a, a town in the south of New South Wales called Hay where all the farmers were changing to cotton farming and the, the cotton cooperative, Oscott, decided to build a cotton gin in hay, which required 160 workers to move in. I heard about this on the ABC News, 160 workers moving to hay to build this thing. And um, hay is a town of about 4,000 people. And when I looked up the rental vacancies, there were two. And I thought, well, hang on, if 160 families are going to move in and they're going to rent while this thing's being built, then rents are going to go through the roof. And that's, of course, exactly what, what happened. But I also looked at the number of listings and there were only about five properties for sale. So I thought, well, when the rents go up and everybody finds out and they want to get part of the, the high cash flow, then, of course, prices are going to go up as well as the investors start competing. So in about seven months from when I discovered this phenomenon was about to start, um, in seven months, property values in Hay doubled. And uh, that was the best, the best result I've ever had in terms of predicting a result. Um, but it was all about the fact that the demand for rentals and then the demand for buying properties 
was way in excess of what was available. Yeah. So with the combination of listings becoming tight, vacancy rates becoming low, obviously there's there's indications that the market's on the up and up, but you obviously had to understand that there was going to be demand coming from, you know, the the cotton changeover and the infrastructure that was required there. How do we plug ourselves in to understand what's happening from an infrastructure and an investment point of view to be able to spot things like this? Well, right now, Mike, it's, it's very easy to do that because the federal government is committed and the state governments uh, huge amounts of money and they're bringing forward lots of infrastructure projects uh, into the next year or two in order to generate uh, employment. So you can you can look at the, the government sites on Building Australia and so on and see where these projects are going to occur. And what you look for is, well, which of these projects is going to result in an increase in housing demand? Are they going to make an area more attractive for people who want to you know, commute to the city or even to, for retirees to move? Uh, how does this work? And the way in which we, we studied this phenomenon was um, when the Pacific Highway was being duplicated from Newcastle all the way north to the Queensland border, that's a thousand kilometres of highway duplication. It was a massive project. And what I noticed was that as the project moved forward and the duplication uh, construction workers moved forward, the first thing that happened was that they caused this massive increase in, in rental demand because they had to live locally near where the, the highway work was going, ongoing. Uh, once that had finished, it meant that the, the town was suddenly a lot more easy, safer and quicker to get to from people in, say, Sydney or Brisbane. So um, towns like first there was um, Kempsey, Taree, Port Macquarie, Warhope, all the way up to Ballina, you saw massive rent rises and then price rises following. So yes. follow the infrastructure projects, look at those where the, um, the type of infrastructure is going to increase housing demand, like um, East Gippsland, highway duplication in Victoria is a good example of that. In Queensland, the Bruce Highway duplication, which is 2,000 kilometres from uh, the Sunshine Coast all the way to Cairns. So these are the areas that have got almost guaranteed potential because it's government money, um, you know, being spent on them. So you don't have to worry about any any change in direction, and uh, that's the sort of infrastructure I'd be looking at for the best results right now. Yeah, beautiful. And we're talking about a big um, pipeline of of government expenditure as a bit of a, a, a stimulus to the economy, of course. Yes. I, I know that you're you've taken some keen interest in the post-war booms uh, and what's happened to to property. Is there anything in your analysis that we can learn from that is, is applicable? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Post-war booms, um, there's actually been two of them, after the First World War and also after the Second World War. 
um, and they had almost identical results. The first was that all the, the soldiers came back home and they wanted to start families. They, they put off um, having families for you know, many years. So we saw a sudden increase in housing demand as they, they came back. Um, and also the government supported them by giving them sort of ward service home loans and so on. So they had the ability to buy properties. And that was accompanied by a massive increase in the number of overseas arrivals. So we welcomed people from war-torn Europe to come here and, and rebuild their lives. So in massive numbers of uh, overseas arrivals. And this resulted in a, a doubling. In both cases, the property market doubled in about two years. So you can imagine, you know, a 100% increase in just two years. Wow, yeah. Yeah, that happened each time. And, and then that was followed as all the um, overseas arrivals came here by an increase in rent demand, so rents went up as well. And um, that's what I think we can learn from that period of time, that this is highly likely to happen again because it's been very similar. We've had an international border closure, not caused by war, but caused by a virus. And when they reopen and people see just how well we've, you know, we've got through this, we'll um, want to come here. Now... With that being with that being the case, what is the direct implication for the property market? Of course, we can understand that if the international students return, then the vacancy rates for CBD apartments are going to perhaps come come back down to earth because uh, they've definitely suffered. But what what else is there? Of course, there's going to be destinations that have. Uh, are beneficiaries of tourism. Can you give us an insight into what the implications are when people start coming here? Um, well, they'll be tourists, they'll be international students, they'll also be permanent arrivals. And uh, the key to overseas arrivals is that they'll tend to move to areas where they feel at home. They could be ethnically friendly areas where people, you know, have gone before and, and built sort of um, schools and mosques or temples or churches that uh, they, where they want to worship and shops where they feel at home where they can buy goods. So what tends to happen is that where people come from determines where they're likely to move to, at least initially, when they come here. So if we have a look at the world right now and we can see some big travel spots, uh, once international border restrictions are lifted, we'll probably see a massive number of people coming from Hong Kong, for example, to Australia, probably also from uh, Lebanon, you know, which is a disaster-struck country, and probably also from Europe and even from North America. So these people are likely to choose certain areas when they come to Australia, and I think most of them will be the highly urbanised, educated people, and um, they'll probably choose the very areas that are now worst affected, that is, inner urban high-rise areas, that's where they'll want to live and rent. So, you know, if you've got a, a unit in, say, Melbourne CBD or Sydney CBD, hang on to it if you can because it's all going to be good in a few years' time. Yeah, absolutely. Probably couldn't be much worse than it is right now at the moment. John, let's talk about the, the property's seven deadly sins that you coined. What are, we, what are we getting at there? Well, there are seven things that people tend to do wrong. You know, I've, I've been presenting and, and talking to people, thousands of them over the years, and, and they keep coming up telling me they've made these same mistakes. Um, 
the first one, which is probably the biggest one that most people will fall into at some stage, and I know I, I did early on as well, and that is buying with your heart and not your head. So that is you, you fall in love with an area and you decide to to um, to buy there without any real regard for what the property market's performance is likely to be. When you're buying, say, an investment property, you need to buy with your head and not your heart. And remember that you won't be living there. One of the areas that um, we discovered, it was in Tasmania, and it's a suburb of Hobart called Risdon Vale. That's on the eastern shore, and it's an outer suburb. It had the highest rental yield of any suburb in Tasmania. So I thought, why is this? And it consistently rental shortages and high yield. So I um, decided to go and have a look. And when we got to Risdon Vale, we discovered that there was this huge maximum security male prison there where all the uh, serious defenders, the males, go in Tasmania to spend their you know, time behind bars. I thought, why on earth would anyone want to rent properties here? And it was when I looked around, I discovered what it was. It was all the, the wives and the girlfriends of the inmates who wanted to rent in the Risdon Vale so they could be near their partners for wonderful visits on, on weekends. And right. in the prison, they've even built a little um, childcare centre where the kiddies can go and play while my mum's having a cuddle with, with dad. So these young families, you know, single mums and so on, want to live there because that's where their partners are you know, accessible. So you mightn't want to live in Risdon Vale, and um, I'm not disparaging the suburb in any way by that. But what I mean is that there are many people who do. So when you're buying a property, um, look at it with your head and not with your heart. That That is a very, a very unusual example. Righto. So you've pled the case for point number one, buying with your heart rather than your head. What else have we got? Okay. Um, well, the, the next one is being afraid you'll miss out. Uh, this is where speculation rears its ugly head. You might hear these properties are selling faster than hotcakes. If you're not quick, you'll miss out. And so you jump in because everyone else is, uh, purely because you don't want to miss out. And, and that's a mis- always, you know, if I hear people saying, these are selling real quick, you know, the, the market's really hot, um, that's a good reason not to buy rather than one to buy. So don't be afraid you'll miss out. There's always going to be another property, another opportunity. But, um, you know, remember the first rule, use your head, not your heart. <laughs> exactly. So, All right, number three. Yeah, um, that's relying on the wrong evidence. You, you might get a barbecue and you hear someone talking about an area or at work, you know, relying on this sort of hearsay, anecdotal type evidence that uh, something's going to boom, don't do it. Always um, do the research and find out what's really going on and when it's likely to happen. The next one is relying on rental guarantees, deposits back. In some cases, you know, some developers will offer double your deposit back. It sounds fantastic. So it means you pay 20000 deposit and at settlement, they give you back 40000 and you think, well, that's I've just made $20,000. Um, but you are paying for all of these incentives in the price you pay for the property and you're yeah. paying for that a long time. And even worse, if you're paying stamp duty, you're actually paying stamp duty on the money that they're giving you. So um, watch out for all these guarantees and incentives because you might end up paying for them. 
the, the next one is buying the wrong type of property. You might find that an area is about to do very well because, say, retirees are moving into an area um, and you think, oh, I'll buy a property and then I'll fix it up and I'll sell it to a retiree in a few years' time. Now, if that property is uh, three storeys on the side of a hill, um, retirees won't be interested in it. So if you're looking at a retiree market, you would buy a single level, easy access, low maintenance, high security property within an easy walk to the shops. So that's always look at who you're going to be selling to as to the type of property you need to be buying now. And then leading on from that is buying in the wrong location. And what I mean there is, if, again, if you're looking at the retiree market, you might find the perfect property, but it could be near a busy school or it could be near a late night uh, hotel or even worse, it could be close to a graveyard. And, you know, you wouldn't find retirees very excited at the prospect of living near your So you want Too close to home, maybe. Exactly. Um, and the last one is relying on the wrong advice. Uh, there's a lot, the market is unregulated and there's a lot of uh, sharks out there and, and wolves in sheep's clothing, as I call them. And you'll see these offers on, on Facebook and so on where they offer you toolkits and videos, workshops, you know, free education, free training. Um, but what are they? They're probably doing something which they're going to gain from a lot, uh, but you may not. So always check the bona fides of anybody who offers to you know, give you some sort of free education or, or a report or anything like that. Find out what their motivation really is. Yeah, I think I think that's really, really good advice, especially given the next couple of years, it's it's likely that we're going to see investors come back a little bit where we've got potential for property spruikers that maybe didn't exist to the same extent in the last couple of years. So they're probably going to come out of the woodwork. So it's very, very important to ensure you understand how they're getting paid and by what metrics, what the incentives are and ask them the tough questions and, and if they answer it and you're satisfied then great but you want to be you want to be making sure they know what they're doing john what about the sticking with the same sort of theme what about the three p's the three p's um yeah what am i getting out there yeah <laughs> well as i i studied the way that the housing market works i, I realized that there are three main dynamics of, of the market's performance and so i thought i'd simplify this right down one uh, of the three P's will population growth, purchasing power and places. What do I mean by that? Well, population growth and movement. Movement is very important because more people move around Australia each year than uh, our total population growth. So that affects demand. So if the population is going up in a particular area, demand for housing is going to increase as well. The purchasing power, that's the second P, tells you the type of demand. Some of them may be renters, some of them may be um, owner-occupiers, some of them might be investors. So the limits to what they can borrow, whether they, they need to borrow, will determine whether they're renters or buyers. And the third P is simply the number of places. Is there a shortage or a surplus? We've looked at areas like Hay and, um, and Russell Island where you had one or the other and therefore that determined whether rents or prices would go up or down as a result. So when I, I'd worked this out, I thought, well, how can I put this together in a way that 
that we can easily identify areas that have got growth potential and which ones haven't. So I developed a, a housing market uh, prediction solution, which I patented. It's the only patented predictive housing market database in Australia, and it's been over 90% accurate over the last decade in predicting the um, direction and intensity of price and rent movement. So putting all that together, we've done it all so that we can then work out what any suburbs, houses or units are likely to do. Yeah, wow. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. This is why we're getting you on the show. Um, what about the regional versus cities debate? I, I think that's probably underselling the complexity of are regionals versus uh, versus cities better. But you've obviously done the the research. What do we need to know about the regional versus city argument? Well, if if we go right back to when I started analysing the market, nineteen hundred and one, the uh, typical price for a property in in the country, regional markets was the same as one in capital cities. So there was no real difference for the same type of property if you bought in Melbourne or if you bought out in, say, Ballarat or even further out in the regions uh, and this applied to every, every state. Prices were about the same. And then over time, I noticed that that differential started to, to become more obvious because what was happening was after the First World War, we had a lot of people go off to war and uh, some of them didn't come back. We had overseas migration, and there was a drift to the cities, and that occurred again in the, after the Second World War. And then more recently, we've had a lot of uh, overseas arrivals up until, of course, the COVID pandemic. And most of these people have preferred to live in capital cities. So when you compare the price now, it's about 60%. So that means a, a typical house in the country compared to a typical house in capital city, the difference is that one sixty percent of the other. So that tells you over long periods of time, you're much better off buying a property in a capital city than what you are in a regional area. That explains why the prices are so different. It's, it's a gradual thing, it takes a long time. So that means that unless you've got a clear goal in buying in a regional area, um, like that there's imminent growth potential, there's really no benefit in buying in the regional area. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I guess Hay is an example where you knew that there was a clear clear benefit, so that was that was enough justification to to, to pin your flag on that. What about the past being a, a useful way to predict future performance. Is there anything in that uh, at all? I mean, obviously, we've been talking about going back to the 1890s. Uh, have you been able to observe suburbs sort of sticking to their trend that are fairly, I guess, obvious in their, their linear progression at a certain percentage growth each year? Not really. Um, what I have seen is how um, many experts will use past performance to justify certain outcomes. So for example, there are some people out there who say, oh, look, only ever invest in areas that have ex you know, experienced high past performance. You know, they've got consistent price growth and therefore they're going to guarantee you good growth into the future. And then others will say, oh, look, you, no, don't do that. Look for areas that have had no good performance at all because they're overdue for growth. So you know, you've got these two different arguments coming out yeah. justifying certain positions um, and they can even be made by the same people. I think that 
What we can do about the past is you can draw lessons from it. You can see how the market performs uh, over time and what happens and why certain areas do well and others don't. But you can't generally use that to predict where it's going to go in the future as a, as a general rule. Um, that's not to say that over time we'll find that areas, let's say if you look at Melbourne or Sydney, there are some areas that have this scarcity factor, like they might be close to the CBD and uh, in Sydney they might be close to the harbour or the beach, but they'll become progressively more scarce as our cities get bigger. So they, they become, um, the demand rises and so prices tend to go up more. But that's about, you know, as much as you can use this sort of uh, long-term performance for. And there's, there's no such thing as overdue for growth, really, is there? I mean, property markets can stagnate and, and stay that way or, or get even worse, right? So that's not really an appropriate strategy. It isn't, and it, it misses the point of uh, let's look at back at the Great Depression. What happened there is that there was prices fell by 18% over about six years, and then they didn't go up again until after the Second World War. So we're looking at uh, you know that 14, 15 years of, of falls and no growth. But at the same time, rents went through the roof because people still had to live somewhere and they couldn't afford to buy properties. The banks couldn't lend them money. And so the rent demand went up dramatically. So if you've got continued um, population growth in an area, if it's not going to go into price, it's going to go into, into rents. So you can't just say an area is overdue for growth. Um, I mean, certain people have been talking about Brisbane for years, saying it's overdue for growth. Um, yes. And it probably is. But um, it's because there's been enough supply and therefore that hasn't occurred. But in general, either one or the other will go up. You mentioned before that there's always a market somewhere that's in demand within Australia. And it seems the way you speak, you place a lot of value on timing the market rather than time in the market. I don't think it maybe has to be a rather than, but certainly timing is a key thing for you with your research background and your understanding of of the markets how, how important do you think it is for investors to time their purchase in an area that's going to get growth um, within the first few years of ownership well, i think it's uh, especially when you're starting out as a, an investor it's all about growth because what you're doing is you're borrowing the bank's money at maybe two three percent and if you're getting high growth on that borrowed money, you're making money on the bank's money, which is a good way to, to do it. Um, if you look at the, if you buy in an area where the average growth, say, say four or five percent, and you're paying a lot of that back to the bank, you're not really making much headway at all. And that's generally how the market performs if you're in sort of just buy anywhere, go for buy and hold, or what I call hold and hope. Um, that's you're not going to get you where you want to be. So if you can buy in areas where that high growth is imminent and you're going to get more than, say, 10% per annum growth, then you'll get ahead very, very quickly because you're using the bank's money. So the, the trick, of course, is being able to identify where those areas are and the right time to actually go in and, and buy a property. And if you, if you do get it right, such as you did with your first purchase doubling in, in five years, you can sort of have that, I guess, false sense of security and 
you, you mentioned yourself generously that your second property, in your own words, was a bit of a mistake. What sort of went wrong there? Was it just the expectation that that's what property does? It'll just go up no matter where I go? Oh, I think the mistake was my ignorance um, in not knowing how the market performed at all. I, I just assumed that this is what the market did, um, which in, if you looked at it realistically, you couldn't possibly do that. Um, so I thought when I, I bought the first property and it did what it did, yes, I just made a very uh, bad judgment call and I thought, well, if I do this, I'm just going to do it again. Um, and I bought the wrong property in the wrong area at the wrong time, you know, did everything wrong and um, made it all on the assumption that prices would go up. So I learned a lot from that, that mistake. Uh, thank goodness it was not the first property I bought, otherwise I'd probably be a retired school teacher and not a, not a property market analyst. <laughs> What uh, what should investors be doing, do you think, in the next couple of years? Obviously, that's a time of, of reasonable opportunity for investors. What what should they be focusing on, in your view? I think if, if you're after um, cash flow, then it's very important over the next few years to avoid inner urban unit markets and older established suburbs where overseas arrivals settle, and to do that until the international borders have been opened and we're starting to get people coming in and to them will know, you know, which of the areas that have got best cash flow potential. So stay away from those right now. And also um, areas where students uh, will rent like near tertiary institutions, overseas holiday destinations, they're the areas that's, the, you know, where, where to stay away from. But where should you be going? Well, I think over the next few years what we're going to see is that that first-hand buyer demand we're seeing now what that does is people who have already bought homes in those areas, and I'm talking about outer suburban areas, say um, in Melbourne, the Mopi, around Pakenham, Cranbourne, Melton, those sorts of areas which are now going up in price and demand. In Sydney, you've got the Grand Penrith and Campbelltown and so on. Those areas where people have already got properties, they're going to see the opportunity of upgrading and moving closer into the city to a better location, a bigger home. So that's where the growth is really going to move into over the next few years. So I'd be looking at um, upgrader areas where people can uh, you know, upgrade to, so you're getting in first before they do, and then you'll pick up that growth as it occurs. And the other thing, of course, is um, older retirees downsizing. That's going to continue and probably pick up uh, as baby boomers reach that, that retirement age. And they'll think about selling the family home and um, maybe they sell it to 1.5 mil and they'll look for somewhere um, at half that price, which means they can buy a nice little coastal unit somewhere and keep the rest as a nest egg. So they're the areas that I think are the types of um, demand that's going to really rule the market over the next few years. I love it. John, if people are wanting to get in touch with you or check out any of your material, what's the best way to do that? We've got a, a website called Lindemann Reports. It's, uh, my name is spelled L-I-N-D-E-M-A-N. Uh, on that site, we've got blogs, videos, they're regularly updated. There's a free newsletter you can subscribe to, and we even offer a free consultation. We, we did that um, during the COVID crisis because uh, we weren't doing any reports, and I thought, well, I can spend my time usefully by offering 
a 30-minute free telephone consultation. Well, we're still doing that. I don't know how much longer we can because <laughs> things are getting pretty hectic. But uh, if you'd like a free consultation, then go to the website, Lindemann and Sports, and um, you can get one of those for free. Beautiful. If there's one piece of advice that you can give to property investors, John, what would that be? Well, I think it's probably more relevant now than it has been for some time, and that is that the property investment industry spawns many uh, spruikers, and they seem to come out of the woodwork whenever prices start to go up because it's easier for them to, you know, to peddle their uh, their wares. They, you know, they'll pretend to be experts, but they're really only after your money. So I think before you get involved with anyone in the property market, no matter who they claim they are, always check their bona fides. Have a look at um, Google their names and see what happens. You'll be surprised at some, what some of the uh, histories they have. Have they been investigated by ASIC or Fair Trading? Check their credibility. And the reason for that is that the property investment that you make involves the biggest amounts of money that uh, you're probably ever likely to be dealing with, and it's critical to make the best possible decisions. Beautiful. Thank you very much for your time, John. Today I've learned a lot. It's been a real pleasure, and we'd love to, to get you back another time. Thanks a lot, Mike, and uh, I wish everyone... All the best in their property investing journey. Cheers, John. Appreciate it.